Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, chat, Mike, chat. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical Theology, folks. That is what we do here at Theology Matters. We are so glad you could join us again for another show. Uh, We are going to be having my good friend 
uh, Chris Van Allsburg on, who's a Southern Evangelical Seminary student, uh, talk, talk about natural law uh, kind of in the Reformed theological uh, tradition. What did the Reformers think about natural law? What did Calvin think about natural law? What is natural law? <laughs> Some of those questions we will uh, be tackling. I uh, want to thank everyone for listening to the show last week. We had a lot of listeners uh, come and download our uh, big debate that we hosted between Fred Butler, uh, who works as a, I believe, a coordinator there with uh, Grace to You. Uh, Ministries, which is John MacArthur's uh, ministry, who most people know and have been uh, thoroughly blessed by his ministry. Uh, And we had Adam Tucker uh, from Southern Evangelical Seminary on to discuss apologetic uh, methodologies. It was a very good show. It was was an important show. Some people, I think, question uh, what's you know what's the what's the purpose in debating some of these ideas like apologetic methodologies. Uh, Fred's a Christian, Adam's a Christian. What's the point? Well, ultimately, um, uh, you know, we want to say that, of course, um, apologetic methodology is not an essential of the faith, right? How one does apologetics, one's views on apologetics, etc., they're not essential to the Christian faith. But, I think sometimes people think because a particular topic is not an essential of the faith, uh, that therefore it's not important, and we don't want to take that attitude. There's there's several issues that uh, may be non-essential but are still important, and we think apologetic methodologies is certainly important. And I want to say, you know, kind of from the outset as well, um, Fred Butler represents a particular view of presuppositional apologetics. Uh, There are different stripes, as I said earlier uh, last week in the show, of presuppositional apologetics, which Fred himself said. Um, So if you are a presuppositionalist, and I heard from a few uh, that, uh, you know, might have not been too happy with the way uh, Fred had performed or whatever. Uh, some people were happy, some people weren't, etc. Um, you know, we can't, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, I would like to get a uh, a presuppositionalist on down the road, maybe with some training in philosophy, thinking of someone maybe like Greg Welty or James Anderson, uh, someone who has some formal training in those issues, uh, to do a discussion with uh, with a guy that is representing classical apologetics and I think that would be a good discussion. Um, as I'm, you know, studying out the issue a little more for myself, I, I, I certainly see things in the presuppositional method uh, that I do like uh, and that I think um, are pretty good arguments if you do some uh, modification with them. Uh, so I'll just uh, say, you know, if, if you haven't heard the debate yet, you can go to Theology Matters with the Palouse on our Facebook page. Uh, we have all of our shows archived there, so you can listen to those debates and those discussions. We've done several. We've done 
the base with Roman Catholics, with Mormons, with atheists, uh, and with fellow believers on issues like annihilationism, right? Whether hell is eternal conscious torment um, or if uh, annihilationism is true. We've had a few debates with the guys from uh, RethinkingHell.com, Chris Date in particular. So check out our page. Uh, we've been doing the show for almost four years now, and, and man, we've, we've covered a lot of topics, done a lot of shows. So feel free to check out our Facebook page there, Theology Matters with the Palooms. So with that being said, uh, for the first hour, I wanted to look at a uh, PowerPoint presentation. I am, I've actually done and have done this, this talk a few times now. Uh, I teach a class, of course, at uh, you know Winthrop University, where we are the chapter directors out there. Uh, we meet on Tuesday nights, and we go through different curriculums, uh, apologetics and theology. But also, I'm teaching a uh, class on Mondays, Monday afternoons, at Kershaw Prison. Kershaw Prison, and so. Uh, it's a 13-week course, and then we take a couple weeks off and, and do kind of cycle in some new people. And so we're we're doing basically two different sessions. One one 13-week session we look at apologetic issues. The next 13-week session we look at theology. And one of the issues that we've been looking at is this idea of worldviews. What is a worldview? And I named this talk the Battle of the Worldviews, Battle of the Worldviews, and so many people have seen this this bumper sticker, the Coexist bumper sticker. It's very popular, especially on the on the college campuses. Like I say, if you just uh, take a ride down to your local college campus, you'll see these Coexist bumper stickers everywhere. And for those who are not familiar, I think probably everybody is, but for those who may not be familiar, the Coexist bumper sticker has different uh, different uh, religions' logos. So, uh, like the, you know, you have the Coexist, uh, you got the Jewish um, symbol for Judaism, you have the Islamic symbol, you have a cross, you have the yin and the yang, uh, you have the peace sign. And what this is conveying is um, we need to coexist. And the reason this is popular is because it's ambiguous, right? It's not very clear. Because in one sense, I think we as Christians could agree we should coexist. Definitely, we should coexist. I mean, we should be able to live with, with Jews and with Muslims and, you know, with Rastafarians, with occultists, etc. We should be able to live with these people and not not do violence to them or not have, you know, attack them, etc. And, and the groups not attack each other. So if that's what they mean by coexist, well, certainly we would agree with that. Well, unfortunately, that is not what is meant by this slogan, coexist. What is meant is uh, every truth claim is equally true and equally valid. If you're a Christian and you say Islam is false, you are a bigot. You are narrow-minded. You are unloving. 
if you're a Christian and you say Judaism is false, you are narrow-minded and you are a bigot. And so, really, the underlying issue on this coexist bumper sticker and this kind of mentality that has taken over much of American uh, Americanism and even crept into the church is this idea that um, all truth claims are equal. And that's what we, we need to examine, and that's what we need to uh, to test. You know, as, uh, you know, I'm an unashamedly uh, Protestant radio show, and uh, I am a Reformed Baptist, though there is not, you know, all of our guests are not Reformed Baptists or even Reformed people, uh, though today's guest is. He's a Reformed Presbyterian. Um, but I say that to say... Um, the Bible is, if you're a Protestant, you hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, folks, that does not mean that the Bible alone is the only thing we read. You know, we see, we get these caricatures, sometimes from our Roman Catholic friends, and sometimes Protestants themselves, who are not very familiar with church history and with Protestant theology and the Reformation, and uh, have not taken the time to look at the Reformed confessions and creeds, such as Westminster, London Baptist, uh, etc., uh, to, to really get an understanding of what do we mean by sola scriptura. And so sometimes people will set up a straw man and then attack Sola Scriptura. Of course, a straw man is when you are basically building a caricature of your interlocutor's position, and then you attack it. So, for example, some might say, well, you believe in Sola Scriptura, but the Bible does not tell us about science, it does not have all the words that Jesus said. In fact, I believe it's in John at the end says, "If all these words that Jesus said would not be uh, were contained, uh, not even all the, the 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 books in the world could contain them." Well, folks, that is not what sola scriptura is. Now, some Christians that I have run into in the past, and I'm sure we'll run into the future, will say things. Like, um, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be part of a local body, right? I don't need to study confessions or creeds or church history because I have my Bible. I'm sitting under this little apple tree and I'm reading my Bible. It's just me and my Bible and Jesus. I don't need anyone to teach me. I don't need to worry about church history. I don't need to worry about any of that. Well, that is what's often called solo scriptura, right? And that is not what the Reformers taught. That is not what um, at all was taught through church history and et cetera. And so we want to be careful not to attack caricatures, and we also want to make sure we have a correct idea of what exactly the Reformers were teaching with Sola Scriptura and why that matters. 
And folks, why it matters on this issue, particularly of worldviews, is we are to test everything uh, according to Scripture. First Thessalonians 5:19 through 21 says, "Test everything and hold fast to that which is good." And so we want to do that. We want to do that. And uh, as Christians, as as, uh, as a Protestant. I am going to look at these other religions, these other worldviews, and I have to compare them to the scriptures. And I have to see what does it say. So, for example, if I'm looking at Islam, and Islam says God has no son. Well, if God has no son, uh, but the Bible seems pretty clear that, (laughs) and it is very clear, that Jesus is God, and Jesus is the Son of God, then according to biblical theology, Jesus says Son. Now, I'm not, uh, again, saying you just, you know, blindly just accept the Bible and argue from the Bible and, you know, whatever the Bible says, um, you know, etc. So I'm I'm not saying that. Um, The Bible has been demonstrated to be true. The Bible has manuscript evidence. The Bible has archaeological evidence. The Bible has fulfilled prophecy. The Bible has uh, scientific evidence. The Bible is internally consistent. Uh, There is good case that Jesus rose from the dead historically. Uh, If Jesus rose from the dead historically, then Jesus is God. And if the Bible is the word of God, the Bible can't err. And Jesus affirms that the Bible is the word of God. And if Jesus is God, then Jesus cannot err. And so when we look at these, world, uh, these other worldviews, we're going we're gonna to look at them both in light of Scripture uh, and in light of just kind of uh, philosophy, science, etc. Uh, because if God created this world... And I believe he did. And, uh, you know, we've done numerous shows why we think that, arguments, evidence, etc., that undergirds that. But if he created the universe, then what we find in the universe should be compatible um, with what we see. So, for example, if, if the Bible is true that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, well, we would expect a few things. We would expect uh, that the universe had a beginning. (laughs) We would expect to see design in the universe. Um, We would expect to see um, animals that maybe suddenly appear in the fossil record uh, that are not you know, through millions of years of natural selection and mutations, etc., cetera, uh, you don't find the evidence for that in the fossil record. So it would seem that the certain things that we find in reality and in the universe um, are consistent with the way the world is. Um, when you get into issues of uh, truth and dealing with things like uh, epistemology, there's different theories of truth. There's different views of truth. Well, we hold that truth is, uh, we hold the correspondence theory of truth. The truth is that which corresponds to reality. And so all truth, I would say, is God's truth. 
Of course, facts um, don't interpret themselves. They have to be interpreted. Scientists are, uh, as, as Dr. Frank Turk says, science doesn't say anything. Uh, scientists do. Facts are not self-interpreting. We have to interpret them. And so all that to say, philosophy, science, history, these things will come into play as we look through different worldviews. So kind of as we look at the outline of what is a worldview, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that kind of because some people are probably never heard of a worldview, maybe not familiar with it. Secondly, we'll look at what are the three basic worldviews. We will look at a short evaluation of the worldviews uh, and why having a right worldview matters. Now, I'm, I'm going to go till a little bit before 7, my time. So about 40 minutes or so here, and, uh, and then we'll break and bring our other guest on. So that say we'll probably uh, have to pick up again next week on this. So we'll probably do this in about two parts. But I don't want to rush through this. I think it's important. I think we need to we need to spend some time on this. So what is a worldview? Well, David Noble, uh, who is the author of Understanding the Times, says a worldview is the framework which we view reality and make sense of life and of the world. It's any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relation to God in the world, says David Noble. So it's a way in which we view the world. On this uh, PowerPoint, what I do is I have a picture of someone looking through a pair of sunglasses. Now, if you're anything like me, you're blind as a bat and you can't see anything unless you're wearing glasses. And then when you put your glasses on, oh, now you can see things clearly. Well, if you're a Christian, then, uh, and not just a Christian, everyone has a worldview. Let me back up. Everyone has a worldview. The atheist has a worldview. Christian has a worldview. The Mormon has a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Oprah Winfrey has a worldview. Uh, everyone has a worldview. So let's not get that mistaken. But the way in which depending on what your worldview is, is going to determine how you view things. So, for example, take the issue of, oh, let's take uh, abortion. So let's look at the issue of abortion. For many secularists or atheists, uh, and I don't want to say all, because there are a number of actually pro-life atheists and pro-life atheist groups and pro-life atheist apologists. But for many... Um, atheists, they are not going to see the unborn as something that is made in the image of God, um, has particular value because of that, um, etc. They're going to see the rights of the woman outweighing the rights of the unborn. 
that part of that uh, is like with a lot of people, it's just um, misinformation. They don't understand embryology. They don't understand the science. They, they don't get that. The abortion issue is one that is just easily manipulated by emotions. Um, but as a Christian, uh, and now I will say, unfortunately, there are many Christians who have no problem with, uh, with abortion either. And I would say this, I would say for the Christian that does not have a problem with abortion, uh, they are being inconsistent in their worldview, majorly inconsistent in their worldview. As to where with an atheist, I think you could go either way. I think you could go either way. Um, some atheists are going to say, uh, you know, there's a principle that we need to um, survive as a species. We need to repopulate. We need to do, uh, you know, um, procreation, etc., is good for the planet because it keeps the species strong, and therefore uh, abortion would be a bad thing because it, it harms our species. Um, others would see it differently and... Uh, maybe they would think, well, you know, look, you're bringing a kid into the world. Um, they could be around drugs, terrible parents, and they grow up being, you know, a burden to society, and that ends up draining resources, etc. Um, or some, you know, some some have bought into overpopulation, right? People like Peter Singer, uh, and say, therefore, abortion would be a good thing, regardless if it is uh, a human being or not, right? Some. Some may even argue for infanticide. But see, a Christian could never do that. A Christian could never do that because uh, the Bible is the framework with which we see the world. And therefore, life is precious. Uh, It's a gift from God. Um, We are not our own. We're bought with a price. Uh, There is someone we will be accountable to. Uh, at the end of um, our lives, we will have to stand before uh, judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we've done. So worldviews matter. Worldviews help inform how we see issues. Uh, big issue, hot issue right now is uh, sanctity of marriage. Well, in a biblical world, again, folks, this is one issue that uh, unfortunately has eroded into the church and Many evangelicals uh, have caved on this issue, and in my opinion, a lot of it is just sloppy, sloppy thinking. They will know someone who is a homosexual. They themselves are not homosexual, but they will know someone who is a homosexual and think, this person is a nice guy, and because this person is a nice guy, therefore, we should not judge him, and we should not say homosexuality is wrong, and we should allow it in the church. And folks, that is just such an error. <laughs> that is such an error. Um, a biblical worldview would say man and woman made in the image of God. Jesus says in both Mark uh, 10.6 and Matthew 19.4, have you not read which he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, uh, you know, a son will leave his father and his mother, marry a wife, cleave to the wife, the two should become one. Now, that does not mean we are mean to homosexuals. And I will say this, the church has got to do a better job on this front as well, folks. 
I've seen Christians just be very nasty towards homosexual people, and that's not right. Uh, We need to love them. We need to be honest with them. We need to be genuine with them. Right? We don't judge the hearts. We don't judge the motives. We judge the actions according to sacred scripture. And if we love people, truly love them biblically, then we tell them the truth because we want them to be united with Christ. And that is you know, the greatest end man can have. But we don't cave. We don't cave on this issue. We don't back down. We don't shrink down. Uh, we don't say this person's a uh, you know he's a nice guy. Therefore you know and then throw what the Bible says out. And in large cases, what I see in the evangelical world is that uh, it is putting experience, elevating experience over Holy Scripture. Right, and in a worldview, a biblical worldview, we're not to do that. In fact, a biblical worldview, we would say, is based on the infallible Word of God. What does infallible mean? Unable to err, cannot err. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's the Word of God. When you believe that the Bible is entirely true, then you allow it to be the foundation of everything you say and do. See, if I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe that uh, it is theopneustos, or uh, breathed out by God, then really my thoughts and my opinions don't matter. What matters is... uh, Am I lining up with what the Bible says? Am I interpreting the scriptures correctly, right? Because, of course, uh, the word of God is infallible, but our interpretations are not always infallible. And that's why we have to do the hard work of exegesis, etc. But the point is, if the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, and I have friends who are homosexuals, and I'm a Christian, I do not throw out what the Bible says and elevate my experience over what the Bible says. I am a slave to Scripture. Great quote by John Calvin uh, who says, we owe the sacred Scripture the same honor and respect that we owe God himself. Why? Well, because it's the Word of God. It is the Word of God. I was sitting in a church last night, and we were teaching through First uh, Peter. I think it was First Peter chapter two, and uh, and this again, folks, this comes right back to the worldview issue. Uh, the question came up of uh, women's roles in the church, whether uh, complementarian or egalitarian, and uh, that's not you know it's not the debate I want to have right now. At this, at this time on the show, so I'm not, I'm not uh, bringing that up to have that debate here. No, that would make a good show down the road. Um, but the issue that came up as the pastor was reading the text, one of the congregants had said, "Paul prejudiced against women." 
Because it seems like, as I'm reading this passage, it just seems like Paul is prejudiced against uh, women. Now, as soon as he said that, uh, immediate you know response was, that's that's a dangerous position. And the only way you're going to have that position is if you deny the Bible is inerrant. Because this is the problem. First, uh, what is it? Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God. Uh, first, uh, it's either First Peter 1.21 or Second Peter 1.21 says uh, that no... No scripture came about through men's private interpretation, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the issue is this. If Paul was was inspired under the under God the Holy Spirit to write the scripture, then to say that Paul was prejudiced against women would be the same as saying God is prejudiced against women. Is that really the claim we want to make, folks? I don't think so. I don't think that's the claim we want to make uh, because we know from Scripture that's not the case. And, uh, you know, Paul himself, Galatians 3.28, you're neither male or female, slave or free. Uh, What? You're all, what? One in Christ Jesus. But see, if if you don't have a biblical worldview, then you may divorce certain things like what is the nature of the Bible? What is the nature of, an, of inspiration? What is the nature of inerrancy? We've seen these wars break out um, all over the place. And today you have the issue of inerrancy, uh, terrible divisions, terrible debates, and, and scholars that should know better abandoning inerrancy, saying you know things like uh, the Bible's correct on issues of faith and practice, but oh, it's not true when it comes to science or history. Etc. And so, you know, we want to be careful about that. So, a biblical worldview is: you believe that the Bible is infallible. You believe that it's inerrant, inerrant, and you are letting it inform you. Right? You are just the messenger. Your job is not to change the message. Your job is to deliver message. So, let's look at this here. What is a worldview? And what constitutes a worldview? Well, a viable worldview must offer adequate question or answers to these questions. First, what is ultimate reality? What kind of God, if any, actually exists? Again, this is not just uh, an issue that theists have to answer. Atheists have a worldview. Atheists have to answer these kind of questions. What is ultimate reality? Is it as Carl Sagan says, the universe is all there is, was, and ever will be? Or uh, is it as Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? What one is it? Secondly, external reality. Is there anything beyond cosmos? Now, in the days of Rene Descartes and other philosophers, they were grappling with things like, is there an external world outside of my mind? See, we take a lot of these questions for granted 
But, you know, philosophers have struggled with these issues. Um, Is there an external world? Can my senses be trusted? Is there anything beyond the cosmos? As I just had gave the, 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 the Sagan quote that um, uh, was that um, the universe is all there is, was, or ever will be. How about knowledge? How about knowledge? What is knowledge? Can we know knowledge? Is there anything we can know? How do we know? Is is it through uh, simply science, right? Because we live in a day often called scientism, where unless I can know something, unless I can test it, taste it, touch it, uh, you know, etc., then I don't believe it. Well, is is that what we would say? Where we get our knowledge? Can we know things outside of science? Richard Dawkins and others who have written books like The God Delusion would say, uh, no, you can't. You can't know anything outside of science. Science is, is how we know things. That's how we know. And if you believe that God exists or you believe that the Bible is the word of God, you believing these claims, you're being foolish. You should believe science. You should believe what, the, what, what science tells us. That's how we get our knowledge. That is what's most trustworthy. I want to play a clip from Richard Dawkins at a, I believe it was a Reason Rally or one of the atheist conventions. Uh, as he talks about religion and talks about how he sees it as just unuseful and, and ridiculous. Let's play this, this clip here and have a little discussion as we're talking about worldviews, we're talking about reality, we're talking about um, now epistemology. How do we know things? It is 38 after the hour. Let's listen to this clip from Dawkins for a few minutes, and we will come back and, and uh, break down a little bit what he's got to say. At this point, I need to acknowledge the remarkable taboo against speaking ill of religion. And I'm going to do so in the words of the late Douglas Adams, a dear friend who, if he never came to TED, certainly should have been invited. He was? He was, good. I thought he must have been. He begins this speech, which was uh, tape-recorded in Cambridge shortly before he died. He begins by explaining how science works, through the testing of hypotheses that are framed to be vulnerable to disproof. And then he goes on, I quote, Religion doesn't seem to work like that. It has certain ideas at the heart of it which we call sacred or holy. What it means is, here is an idea or a notion that you're not allowed to say anything bad about. You're just not. Why not? Because you're not. Why should it be that it's perfectly legitimate to support the Republicans or Democrats, this model of economics versus that versus that, Macintosh instead of Windows, but to have an opinion about how the universe began, about who created the universe, no, that's holy. So we are used to not challenging religious ideas. And it's very interesting how much of a furore Richard creates 
when he does it. He meant me, not that one. Everybody gets absolutely frantic about it because you're not allowed to say these things. Yet when you look at it rationally, there is no reason why those ideas shouldn't be as open to debate as any other. Except that we've agreed somehow between us that they shouldn't be. Well, that's the end of the quote from Douglas. In my view, not only is, is science corrosive to religion, religion is corrosive to science. It teaches people to be satisfied with trivial, supernatural non-explanations and blinds them to the wonderful real explanations that we have within our grasp. It teaches them to accept authority, revelation and faith instead of always insisting on evidence. Now there's a typical scientific journal, the Quarterly Review of Biology, and I'm going to put together uh, as guest editor uh, a, a special issue on the question, did an asteroid kill the dinosaurs? And the first paper is a standard scientific paper pre presenting evidence. Iridium layer at the KT boundary, potassium argon dated crater in Yucatan, indicate that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Perfectly ordinary scientific paper. Now the next one. The president of the Royal Society has been vouchsafed a strong inner conviction that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> it has been privately revealed to Professor Huxdane that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> Professor Haldley was brought up to have total and unquestioning faith <laughs> that an asteroid <laughs> killed the dinosaurs. Professor Hawkins has promulgated an official dogma binding on all loyal Hawkinsians that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> That's inconceivable, of course. All right, folks. So you see the kind of the mocking and the and the laughing, etc. And that's fine. That's you know that's um, that is typical Dawkins, you know, he'll mock and he'll laugh and he'll caricature and et cetera. You know, he's not going to uh, get in the ring with someone like a William Lane Craig or an Edward Fieser or Peter Kraft, et cetera. Uh, he'll just do his uh, little armchair atheism and, uh, you know, that's how it goes. But on this question, when we're dealing with the worldview of epistemology, how do we know? Dawkins says now, and to be fair to Dawkins, um, there are Christians like this. I, I meet them, folks. I, I truly meet them, and I'm sure you've met them as well. Who will say things like, um, you know, science and logic and reason are enemies of faith. And, and I hear this. I hear this from students all the time with Ratio Christi. Uh, and then, of course, their their minds are blown when they actually see that there is uh, actual evidence for the existence of God, etc. But they will say things like, look, if, if we could give arguments for the existence of God, if we could give reasons for the existence of God, then it wouldn't be faith. 
it would be reason. <laughs> and so they have this idea that faith and reason are incompatible. And they have this idea uh, that when it comes to these bigger issues of life, the way we know the, that the universe was created, that man was a special creation, etc., is through the Bible alone. Now, obviously, uh, I don't disagree that the Bible alone, or, or say alone, excuse me, that the Bible speaks to these issues. How did we get here? Uh, is man special? Uh, did God create um, man distinctly from animals, or are we just through process of evolution? The Bible addresses those. But as I said earlier, if God created the world, and if God created the universe, etc., and all truth is God's truth, then we should see these things in reality. So I'm not saying that um, you know it's bad that we have the the Bible that we shouldn't draw from that, but I'm saying that to say that the Bible alone is that in reality, and the evidence that we see doesn't comport with that is very problematic. Because what it does is it makes God seem like a deceiver. And the problem is, you know, we are in this world as believers, we are to, as First Peter 3.15 says, give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason of the hope that's within us. Second Corinthians 10.5, demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Second Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman need not be ashamed. We live in a culture, folks, today in America anyway, where if you're going to do evangelism, and the Bible says if you're a Christian, uh, you better be doing evangelism. And if we're going to do evangelism, it is very hard to do that apart from apologetics. Now, I'm a Calvinist, right? So as soon as I say things like that, my Calvinist friends will bristle, and other, even other non-Calvinists will bristle, and sometimes misunderstand what I'm saying and think I'm saying arguments save people. I'm not saying arguments save people. I don't believe arguments can save people, right? It's not what we're saying. Uh, but I would also point out that love, loving people, doesn't save people either, right? None of those two things alone, in a vacuum, save people. However, apologetics and arguments with the work of God the Holy Spirit can draw people to saving faith, as does love with along with the Holy Spirit, draw people to a saving faith. So we don't want to say, well, you know, arguments can't, you know, draw people to 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 God, or apologetics doesn't draw people to God. We don't want to say those things, because that's just false. I'm an example that God used the uh, debate um, on the resurrection, between uh, Gary Habermas and the atheist Anthony Flew. He used that debate to save me, even though I was brought up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor. I was 24 years old before I came to Christ, and it was actually through a debate. Because I knew what to believe, I never knew why to believe it. Right? And so I say that to all, all to say, 
Um, when Dawkins is saying these things about how we know things, um, and that's, again, we're, we're dealing with the issue of epistemology here in worldview, how we know, um, sometimes Christians give the atheists the ammo that they need because they will say things like that. They will say things like science is a enemy of the faith. Logic is a tool of the devil. I used to think some of these things were caricatures, but I, I've heard it, folks. I've heard it. I've, I heard it from a gentleman the other day, 70 years old, been a Christian for you know 20 or 30 years. And he's he's saying his biggest fear is when college people, young people go off to college, then they're going to start learning, and that's dangerous. Because if they learn, then they're going to walk away from the faith. And I asked him, so the implication is Christianity is for stupid people. Keep them stupid. Don't let them learn. Because if they learn about reality and science and thinking, they're going to leave it. And that's that's the implications of that. So Dawkins, uh, I think, at at some point, you know, he's getting this a lot of times from Christians and from other theists. Um, But at the same time, he does know that there are Christians out there. So when he's saying, for example, religion can't be questioned or shouldn't be anything bad said about it, he knows guys like Dr. William Lane Craig, philosopher, New Testament theologian, etc. Uh, he knows that that is not Dr. Craig's position. He knows people at Biola. He knows people at, uh, I'm sure, at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He knows these guys. He knows they're not going to say that. They're not going to say, you know, don't question, you know, the existence of God. Uh, you know, he's debated John Lennox, like three times now. Why, I don't know, because Lennox mops the floor with them every time they debate. But he knows someone like John Lennox is not going to say something like that. Uh, he goes on to say re- religion is corrosive to science. Well, the modern branches of science were all founded, most of them were Bible-believing Christians. Certainly most of them were theists or deists, but the vast majority were Bible-believing Christians. And why is that? Well, because they believed the world was rational. And they believed that the world was orderly. And they wanted to know the mind of God. So far from being a science stopper, it was their belief that if God exists, then even the very preconditions of intelligibility and laws of logic and laws of science and the scientific method, etc., were possible. Because you don't have that if naturalism is true. And there's so many arguments you can give to show that. Planting is uh, evolutionary argument against naturalism is a, is a wonderful argument. Uh, it doesn't defeat naturalism, but it just shows that even if it was true, you, you couldn't know it. You wouldn't be able to trust it. Um, And so when he says things like religion is corrosive to science, again, uh, I'm going to be doing a talk um, April 22nd 
Fort Mill Baptist uh, Church, First Baptist. And my talk, I have been given the, the uh, responsibility to talk on um, the, the theme of the apologetics conference is called the Overcome Conference. And uh, so we're going to be, my talk is going to be on uh, overcoming the hijacking of science. Overcoming the hijacking of science. So I am uh, going to be going over a lot of the same material uh, that Dr. Frank Turek provides in his Dealing from God. Uh, which uh, is an excellent book. And um, quick plug for him, they're doing the CIA Instructors Academy again this year. Uh, highly recommend that, folks. If you want to be trained in the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist seminar and have people like Jay Warner Wallace, Brett Kunkel, Greg Kokel, those guys, go to crossexamine.org, CIA, check that out. But in his excellent book, Stealing from God, no, it's not about tithing. He makes the case, and he gives the acronym of CRIMES, C-R-I-M-A-S. And it goes like this. Atheists, in order to steal, or, or sorry, in order to make their case against God, must steal from God. On the back of the book, he says, what if your best reason to doubt God actually prove that God exists. So the acronym is CRIMES. So the first one is causality. And he goes through and he shows how only in a theistic worldview does causality really make sense. Uh, because the world is orderly, because there are scientific laws, because the world is rational, uh, yeah, causality is something which really is the uh, underpinning of all of science because that's what scientists are doing for. They're looking for uh, causes of the effects. Uh, reason. What are the laws of logic? Are they material? Are they immaterial? Uh, where do the laws of logic come from? Do they depend on our minds or is there a transcendent mind outside of ours uh, that grounds things like the laws of logic? Uh, what about information? I was in a discussion today with an atheist uh, who was laughing at the idea of intelligent design, etc., and the idea of um, you know God intervening and creating uh, the first life form. And I had to remind him, well, you know, if you go look at that interview with Richard Dawkins and Ben Stein, Dawkins says uh, he has no idea how life started on Earth, and no one does. No one does, was his words. So what is the explanation for information and uh, et cetera, DNA, et cetera? Stephen Myers, the ID theorist who we have interviewed on this show, you can find that in the archives, wrote a 700-page massive volume called Signature in the Cell, where he goes over all the incredible information, complexity, specificity in the DNA molecule, and how naturalism utterly fails at answering this question. His second book was Darwin's Doubt, where he goes through and he demonstrates, uh, really it's focusing on the Cambrian explosion, and shows how 20 out of the 26 known phyla uh, all appear suddenly. And without any type of uh, ancestors that would show a slow, gradual, neo-Darwinian transition. 
so then you have morality. Uh, how does the atheist account for morality? We've done shows on this. Evil. Uh, some of the the you know the probably the biggest objection to the existence of God is the problem of evil. If God exists, why does He allow evil? Why does the Holocaust happen? Uh, why does why does He do these terrible things uh, that we see in the Old Testament? Of course, in order to make that complaint about God, you have to have an idea of what evil is. If evil is nothing more than <laughs> well, really, in an atheistic worldview, uh, evil is it's 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 I don't even know what evil would be. If I say Mother Teresa good, Hitler evil, how do you adjudicate between the two in an atheistic worldview? Right? Philosophers would would say a lot of times uh, a lot of what the explanation would be is that you're just emoting. You're just saying I don't like it. I don't like um, the Holocaust. I don't like you know killing babies for fun, etc. But it doesn't show really objectively that those kind of actions are wrong, objectively. And so for the atheist to even complain and make these arguments against God being evil, etc., they have to borrow from a theistic worldview. C.S. Lewis said, I would not know a crooked line unless I first know a straight line. And you don't know the way things ought to be you, you don't know the, that something is, is wrong or shouldn't be that way unless you, you know the way things ought to be. And so there are issues with that, where the atheists have to steal from God there as well. Science, of course, um, scientific method is predicated on a theistic worldview. We're going to pick it up next week, folks, as we're going to continue working through this uh, PowerPoint and the battle of the worldviews. Hope you guys are enjoying it. I'm enjoying this a whole lot. Um, we'll continue to work down some of the things that what what makes a, a worldview. Um, so what we will do is we'll go ahead and take a commercial break. And when we come back, we will be joined with my good friend, uh, Chris Van Allsburg, and we will look at uh, natural law and reformers and get into some of those issues. So make sure you stay with us. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. 
Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries in winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said, I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results, uh, good philosophy, has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, well, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church ultimately in which I am called to be a member is what we call the invisible church whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. Got back. 
Folks, and we are back. Thank you for hanging in there with us as we continue plugging along on this edition of Theology Matters. And let me go ahead and introduce our guest tonight. And I want to say up front, Chris Van Allsburg is thinking about this today. I actually was talking to him this morning. I think he's probably one of my best friends, Uh, just a, a great guy. And uh, just very blessed to have him 
come on the show. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's a guy that I call often and uh, will ask questions with uh, and just bounce things off of. Just a brilliant guy. So Chris is a Christian apologist, and uh, we're going to be looking at the issue of natural law today. Chris is uh, actually a graduate, has a graduate with the MDiv from Grace Theological Seminary. Uh, he is currently pursuing a master's degree in philosophy from Southern Evangelical Seminary. And as many of you guys know, we have a lot of guests from Southern Evangelical Seminary on. And I just want to say, folks, in my humble opinion, and of course I haven't been to every seminary, SES is the best when it comes to apologetics, philosophy. It's it's really is hard to beat, folks. I mean, this you get a lot of seminaries that do a lot of things well. SES, their focus is apologetics, biblical languages, philosophy. I mean, uh, you know, they throw the biggest uh, apologetics conference on for the last 20 years in the nation. Uh, and largely, this is, you know, due to uh, the founder, Dr. Norman Geisler, who has just had such a tremendous impact on evangelicals and apologetics, etc. And so, uh, you know, the reason we bring a lot of Southern Evangelical Seminary students on is because, yeah, they're high quality. I cannot say enough about SES. So with that said, with my little rant there, uh, Chris is also a fellow Ratio Christi Chapter Director at Lenore Ryan University. And we're going to be looking at today, what is natural law theory? Um, especially within the uh, tradition of Reformed theology. So, Chris, are you there, my friend? I am, and I need to call you from a different phone. Can I do that? Yeah, absolutely, no problem. We'll let him uh, go ahead and call us back, folks. Sometimes, you know, you have some technical issues uh, as as you do that, but that is okay. As I say, Chris uh, Chris also does Ratio Christi at Lenore Ryan. And for those who are not real familiar with Ratio Christi, Ratio Christi is um, it's a ministry that is on the college campus, and it is there to help equip students uh, in apologetics, learning uh, you know learning what the Christian faith is. And we'll actually let me we'll bring Chris back on here. Uh, I think you're with us, Chris. You there? Yes, I am. Okay, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you good, sir. Um, okay. I don't know if you heard my intro. Did I did I leave anything out? I know you're you're married and and you have uh, some beautiful daughters, right? I do. I have three wonderful little girls. And he he actually homeschools and. They learning Hebrew and like like Hebrew and Greek and all that, right? Uh, right now the focus is primarily Latin, and we do Greek a couple times a week. And I've uh, kind of backed off on the Hebrew a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure that's you know that's, that's a lot. Don't want to so. over, overwhelm them. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're with us today, Chris. As as telling our our audience. Uh, Count you as one of my best friends, and uh, I've wanted you on the show for a while. Quickly, Very tell kind. us a little bit about. Um, I was I was explaining a little bit about Ratio Christi uh, to mm-hmm. those who maybe are not familiar with it. 
What do you do there at Lenore Ryan with Ratio Christie? Um, well, uh, you know, we have weekly meetings where we talk about uh, reasons and evidence for Christianity from science, philosophy, and history. Um, we just got done doing a session on miracles, and I was reading some stories from Eric Metaxas's, uh book uh, by that title, Miracles, some really cool stories in there. Um, we sort of followed the format of the book. The first part of our lesson, we talked about theoretical issues and uh, the skepticism of David Hume and uh, naturalist uh, worldview, worldview issues, things like that. And then we told some really amazing stories about, uh, um, well, miraculous um, miracles of people being snatched from death by uh, angels and uh, uh, things like that. And I also meet wow. students on a one-on-one basis as well uh, to uh, just for discipleship and stuff like that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, let's uh, let's get into our topic. We've got about 45 okay. minutes. Uh, and so okay. Can I put you on uh, speaker let's talk a little bit that, about this? that mess things up? Say that again? It, if I put you on, if I put the phone on speaker, is that going to make things difficult? Uh, as long as I can hear you, okay. <laughs> okay. Let's is, it on, do that. is it on speaker now? No, I'm going to try it. And if it doesn't sound good, just let me know. Sure. All right, here we are. Okay, I think that I think that'll work. Okay, good. So let's let's get into this a little bit. What is uh, and take like I say, take your time. We got forty five minutes, so we don't have to burn through these. Um, okay. What is natural? What is natural law? Why should Christians care about natural law? Okay, well, natural law is uh, basically trying to figure out what is good and what is evil by means of human reason apart from any religious text. That's kind of the short, uh, that, that, that would be the skinny on, uh, on natural law. Okay, so you say that, uh, just finding out, you say what is, yeah, just you say what is good, human... go ahead. Yeah, discovering moral, human morals and ethics, uh, and uh, just by looking at the nature of things, essences of things, um, uh, you can we can take advantage of uh, a lot of the teachings of Aristotle in this regard. Um, um, just looking at, um, you know, what can is you, can what you talk, is uh, talk talk for a minute or so about Aristotle, kind of his contribution to natural law and that. Um, well, not really. <laughs> the, uh, what, okay. what, I'm prepared to talk, what I'm prepared to talk to you about is natural law within the uh, Reformed tradition, so I'm not really okay. all that prepared to talk Aristotle taught. I haven't read his Nicomachean uh, uh, ethics or anything like that. But um, No, that's fine. I can tell you, fine. But, well, I, I can tell you that the classical uh, natural law coming from Aristotle and Aquinas Basically, looks at uh, looks at the essences of things. Like so, like okay, so like the uh, you know Ed Fazer talks about the essence of a squirrel would be to gather nuts and eat them and flick its tail 
and, uh, you know, go in the middle of the road and dart back and forth and freak people out when they're trying not to hit it. Uh, that's, that's the essence of a squirrel is to do those things. Now, if you saw a squirrel kind of like acting all crazy and eating chewing gum and uh, squirting toothpaste at people, you would say, that's not right because that squirrel isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's, it's not living according to what its, what its essence is. Uh, that's kind of a humorous account of, of uh, natural law, but um, uh, that's, that, that would just be one example of looking at the essence and nature of things and the goal-directedness of things based on their nature. Great. Um, well, so, you know, in a in a real real world scenario, it would be like sexual ethics. You know, you would look at, um, or, or let's not do that one. Let's do um, let's do something like human rights. You know, um, mm-hmm. so like uh, something uh, a natural law theory concerning human rights would talk about the golden rule and the silver rule. You know, do unto others what they would have do unto what you would have them do to you, don't do to others what you wouldn't have them do unto you. That's the silver rule. Other, um, other natural, other like self-evidential or universal principles um, would be the doctrine of uh, non-maleficence, which would be um, where if, if, if you can avoid doing so, you shouldn't bring harm to people. That would be like a universal principle, uh, kind of similar to the self-evidential truths that, you know, when we talk about like the laws of logic and the laws of math and things like that, these would be like self-evidential truths. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what is Reformed theology and kind of the the issue with Reformed theology and, and natural law. Okay, well, Reformed theology um, is a system of thought based on um, the Bible, and it is known by means of Luther, Calvin, and Swingley, uh, most notably John Calvin. And so there's a heavy emphasis on the teaching of God's sovereignty over history, uh, his providence, uh, his sovereignty over the salvation of sinners uh, concerning predestination and election. Uh, there's a very strong view of sin uh, and the depravity of man in Adam. Um, and there's an emphasis on uh, God's glory as well, that whatever God does, he does for his own glory. And um, uh, Reformed theology also speaks uh, Ecclesiastes in Israel. It sees a lot of congruence between those two. Uh, at least covenant Reformed theology does. I know there are a lot of Reformed Baptists out there that might see less continuity between the church and Israel as people in covenant theology was would. But uh, Reformed theology and covenant theology uh, go hand in hand. Um, you got your five points of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. So that's Reformed theology. And um, uh, so natural law 
fell into disrepute with Reformed theology uh, uh, prior to the time of Karl Barth with guys like Bob Inc. and Abraham Kuyper in the late 19th century. Uh, Bob Inc. died just before World War One, so he's part of the 20th century a little bit. Uh, you've got Cornelius Van Til, who uh, was the presuppositionalist, philosopher, apologist, and theologian. Uh, but the the primary um, the the person who primarily objected to natural law would have been Karl Barth, uh, the famous 20th century uh, Swiss theologian. He referred to natural law as the teaching of Antichrist. Um, and uh, the reason why was uh, because he thought that it was an idolatrous notion that human beings in their sin could use their fallible reason to attain the knowledge of God. And so that human beings, according to Bart, are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Christ in order to know God. And that anything short of that would be an anti-Christian point of view. Now, that might sound like presuppositionalism to you. And that's... It does kind of, yes. (laughs) Yeah, Barth wasn't a presuppositionalist. He was neo-Orthodox, but uh, that's pretty much um, the skinny on that. So here's what he says. He says, I can see no third alternative between that exploitation of the Analogia entis, which is called the analogy of being, and we'll get to that, uh, which is legitimate only on the basis of Roman Catholicism, between the greatness and misery of a so-called natural knowledge of God in the sense of uh, Vaticanum, and a Protestant theology which draws from its own source, which stands on its feet, and which is finally liberated from this secular misery Hence, I have no option but to say no at this point. I regard the analogia entis as the invention of Antichrist, and I believe that because of it, it is impossible ever to become a Roman Catholic, all other reasons not doing so being, to my mind, short-sighted and trivial. So, Maybe Carl should tell us how he really feels about the Analogia Entis. Uh, <laughs> the Analogia Entis is uh, that's Latin for the analogy of being, and that's just basically, uh, you know, if you've studied Thomas Aquinas, you, you'll recall that um, there's this difference in language when we talk about God. There's the univocal, equivocal, and analogical use of language, and Thomas espouses the analogical use of language in talking about God. And um, uh, so it's strange, like these reformers, um, 19th century, 20th century reformed theologians, um, they, they had a distaste for the analogy of being because it sounded Roman Catholic. Uh, but there was also another reason uh, was that um, it was natural law. Can I, can, I, um, can, I, can I just yeah, ask a question real quick? 
how does that sure. how does that sound Roman Catholic? What what do they mean by that? All right. Um, that's a good question. Um, it just it seems sounds, incoherent. Yeah, it sounds Roman Catholic to these reformers because um, uh, because they the Protestant theologians criticize the Roman Church for a low view of both sin and history. So if if you can attain knowledge, can attain knowledge of God by human reason, then you have a low view of sin. That's it in a nutshell. Um, yeah. And you know when I was doing some research on this, there's uh, this guy named uh, Stephen J. Grabill, and he wrote this book called Rediscovering the Natural Law in Reformed Theological Ethics. And I wrote. Uh, a paper, a critical analysis of a couple chapters of this book. Um, and that's the information that I'm giving you right now. And I noticed that he mentions in passing that Bart, um, Bart's main objection to natural law was rooted in this idea of the analogy of being. And so, um, Hey, Chris, are you there? All right, folks, I think he may have uh, dropped off there for a moment, but uh, we will be sure to get him back. But it's very interesting as we kind of look at the issues of natural law and just how the different um, perspectives within the Christian tradition uh, views these, these things. Let me see if I can pull him back up here. Sometimes you do live radio and things just happen. I'm here. <laughs> you there, buddy? I'm here, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Dropped off. Yeah, I, well, it's uh, I'm using one of my students' phones right now, and he says that's T-Mobile for you. So um, there you go. Uh all right, so the they, they, the reformers, these guys like Karl Barth and gang, they they saw that uh, the Analogia Entis was Roman, Romish, um, so they rejected it. And Grabel also notes that um, Reformed theology had disregard for natural law because it fell into anti-scholastic, anti-metaphysical accents of 19th century German liberal theology, which, and here's the key, they separated metaphysics from theology. So the analogy of being is uh, very much a metaphysical idea. So if you're going to split apart metaphysics and theology and, and just really have a disregard for metaphysics, and the reasons for that would be another interesting study, which, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't prepared. I don't have. I don't have knowledge of that. But um, sure. Uh, sure. If you that split, if you're going to make that split, then then all you, if you're just left with theology, well, then of course you're going to be stuck with just the only way to know that God exists is through, uh, you know, according to Karl Barth, the Christ event, and uh, the you know the testimony of the only Holy Spirit as the Scripture is read. So okay. Kind of the that's kind of the, the part of the reasons why uh, natural law fell into disrepute with 
uh, in Reformed theology. And what's what's fascinating is that uh, everybody claims John Calvin as the main progenitor of this idea. But what, what oddly, what Grabill notes in his book is that people, scholars and theologians, they took for granted that Calvin taught these things, but they never actually ah. bothered to go take So, so there were would Calvin fell, fell off. Would go Calvin's ahead. view would Calvin's view and Aquinas's view on natural law be very similar then? They would be. Um, Calvin's, you know, uh, Calvin did have a strong view of the noetic effects of sin, which I think is a question that's further on down the line. Um, uh, um, Aquinas and Calvin differed on the priority of the reason and the will in the human being, in the human knower. So that's kind of where the key difference is. Can you can uh, you break that down a little bit? <laughs> I I knew you would ask me that. Uh, uh, Seem to think that you know the human intellect um, was not as damaged as Calvin did. Okay. That's the that's the short end of the deal. Yeah, and um, Calvin. For Calvin, um, he puts a lot of onus on the will of the human knower, and um, and that the will also is is highly corrupted. I think I misspoke. I, I think that what um, Calvin and Aquinas were pretty much even Stephen regarding human reason, but that for Calvin the will was more corrupted uh, than for Aquinas. Okay. Uh, so Calvin kind of leaves a formal possibility open for natural law, but he doesn't really develop it. But I got some nice tasty quotes from him for you if you want. I'd love them. I'd love to hear it. Okay. All right. For, for So it's in the Institutes. It, it's in uh, Book 1, 1.15.8. So Book 1, uh, Volume 1, Book 15.8. says this, God provided man's soul with a mind by which to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong, and with the light of reason as a guide to distinguish what should be followed from what should be avoided. He, he says also that um, there is, quote, ample proof that in the arrangement of this life, no man is without the light of reason. Uh, so for Calvin... You know, natural law, natural theology, natural revelation, um, those three things are tied together, obviously, for any theologian. But for, for Calvin, natural theology, its primary purpose is to affirm humanity's universal awareness of divinity. Um, okay. But the natural law is to affirm human culpability, so human guilt. So can I can I ask a, qu- a question that's not necessarily related yes. but kind of? Yeah, yeah. So what would you say Calvin's would Calvin accept Aquinas's arguments for the existence of God? Yeah, I don't know because I don't know that Calvin really develops. Uh, I mean, 
again, I would say that there's a formal possibility that he would, but he doesn't really develop these. Calvin's a theologian. He's not a philosopher. Uh-huh. Um, but because he leaves, uh, because he um, he leaves room open for the light of reason, I would I would guess that he would not have a problem with it. Because what he does wow. is he takes takes Augustine's or Saint Augustine's uh he takes Saint Augustine's uh epistemological um uh, ideas where there are two dis- there's there are two roles, two ways or modes of knowing. There's a heavenly mode of knowing and an earthly mode of knowing. Uh it's what uh is called the double knowledge of God or the duplex cognitio dei and the teaching of Calvin. It's a twofold knowledge of God. And we can have uh in Calvin we can have a non salvific knowledge of God by means of natural theology and um natural and we can know right from wrong in natural law. And then the second part is that we can have a saving knowledge of God, which is you know, the natural means of uh knowing scripture. Okay, so, that's uh, good. That, that helps. Augustinian epistemology that, yes, Calvin leaves plenty of room for natural theology and natural law in his thought. Would you, Chris, would you say that with the Reformers, um, I can't remember, I just read this somewhere, and it made a lot of sense, that they're not... There are certain things that with the Reformation that they're trying to reform, but not everything. And there was a lot of things, um, a lot of the philosophy, etc., with the medievals um, that they had no problems with, that they agreed with. Um, but it was mainly kind of the corruption of the church, you know, soteriology, um, mm-hmm. papal uh, authority, etc., I mean, is that is that fair to say that a lot of the reformers would have held a, a lot of the things that uh, Aquinas would have held in, in a lot of the medievals? Yeah, actually, um, uh, in this book, Graybill takes note of four reformers who believed in natural law. And if you believe in natural law, you believe in natural theology by default, right? So, um, okay. Well, it seems to me, anyways. Um, maybe there's can some philosopher. Can you, can you, can you, real quick, can you just explain natural yeah. theology for the listeners? Okay. Natural theology is simply uh, formulating arguments for the existence of God by human by means of human reason. It's showing that God exists from philosophical argumentation without using the Bible. Very good. Okay. Do you think that's a good definition? Yeah, that works for me, buddy. Okay, good. Because uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm still I'm still learning this stuff too. But uh, in this book, you've got Calvin. You've got another guy named Peter Martyr Bernigli, who is a um, who is an Italian reformer. He believed in the natural knowledge of God, the Creator. You've got Johannes Althusius, a Dutch guy, believed in uh, natural law. And Francis Turretin uh, held to a natural knowledge of God, the Creator, as well. 
so this is knowing that God exists apart from divine revelation, just apart from the special revelation of Scripture, and and knowing it from um, uh, arguments from reason and the you know human conscience. Okay. So they would interpret Romans. They would they would interpret Romans one very differently than say like a presuppositionalist would. Okay. Okay. That that works. So that would probably lead into our next question on the effects, uh, noetic effects of sin, right? Uh, what is yeah. that? How does that yeah. come into play with with natural law? Yeah. So the noetic effects of sin uh, is just. Uh, that the the term noetic comes from the Greek word uh, nous, which means mind. And so what we're doing is we're looking at um, how badly affected is the human mind uh, from sin. And uh, you know, so for Modern-day Reformed theologians, and especially those in the presuppositional school, they're going to use this term a lot, the noetic effects of sin. And they're going to say, there's no way that sinful man can use his autonomous reason to build himself up towards the knowledge of God. There's just absolutely no way. Man is completely ruined. Yeah, What's First that? Corinthians two, First Corinthians two fourteen is is often cited, right? The natural man cannot know yes. or understand the things of the spirit of God, foolishness. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, so they're gonna they're gonna argue that way. Um, uh, however, that's that's a departure from Calvin, and it's a departure from uh, the canons of Dort. As well, which is a reformed confession uh, from the early 17th century. It was written uh, about 20 or uh, about 50 years after Calvin died in the Netherlands. And uh, standard reformed confession, right? Or uh, standard doctrine. Go ahead. Yep, yep. It's a standard reform document, and it says this. It says, uh, uh, regarding the light of nature, it says, There remain, however, in man, since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light, where he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. Now, they offer a contrast here, though. And they say, but so far is this light of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion that he is incapable of using it aright even in things natural and civil. So when I first read that, I thought, that seems contradictory. Uh, It seems like on the one hand, they're saying human reason does retain some knowledge of God. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems like they're saying it's incapable. Man, because of sin, is incapable of using it aright in things natural 
and civil. Um, uh, but uh, it seems like what what they're really saying is that um, human beings in their sin still do retain this knowledge of God, but it's just severely marred or damaged. Okay. It's kind of like if you have a mirror and you and you just wipe a muddy cloth all over it, you know, the mirror still exists. And the mirror still gives a reflection, but it doesn't give a very good one. So, mm. you know, so the so Calvin and the canons of Dort, they do give way for natural law and, and natural theology, but they do have a stronger view on the noetic effects of sin than, say, the Roman Catholic Church, which, you know, the Reformation uh, really centered on on the sinfulness of man and the, the free grace of God. That's what the Reformation was really all about. Would you would you say there's a, a major difference between the Reformed tradition and um, Arminians on this point? Uh, and the reason I ask is I think it's Article Three of the Remonstrance. You read yeah. that, it sounds very. I mean, that, if you used to just read that, people would say that is that is a Calvinist <laughs> view. Yeah. That is a Reformed view. So maybe talk about that for a yeah. second. Um, you know, I don't know too much about whether the Arminians held to natural law or not. I would I would guess that they would, uh, okay. just because you know, hold to. Um, well, they believed in prevenient grace. See, see, these guys are talking about justification a lot of the time. Well, I don't know. If, I, you know, I don't know enough about the Armenian documents to to really make a good an educated okay. statement. That's fine. That's yeah. all right. Okay, so noetic effects of sin. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Can, can you hear me okay there, Chris? Yeah. Okay, thought, thought, we, thought we lost you there for a minute. So... Um, let's. I'm going to let you kind of pick where you want to go here. We got a got what 18 minutes left. I'll let you kind of pick where you want to go on this list as far as next. Uh, maybe it's, yeah. I think I think actually the next question would be perfect. In how is this doctrine understood today in Reformed yeah. thought? Because as I talk to Reformed folks, uh, at least today, man, some some of them don't, but a lot of them have like disdain. Or natural theology and yeah, natural they law. They do. Yeah, uh, and I can uh, I can give you a few uh, tasty snippets um, from uh, Van Till and also William Edgar, who teaches at Westminster. Um, so you know Van Till has this to say about natural law and it's not positive. And what's interesting here is that he he cites Calvin's in, institutes. Okay? So Van Til okay. says 
Men still worship, quote, the dream and figment of their own imagination. And there he's quoting Calvin when he says dream and figment of their own imagination. Uh, so he uh, he's talking about man's inability to reason by means of natural theology, okay? And he mm-hmm. uh, takes note of Calvin's own interpretation of the noetic effects of sin. But as we've seen... Uh, Seems to me like Cal or uh, Van Til reads Calvin wrongly. We read hmm. in book one and two how Calvin said that man is endowed with the light of reason, and that it still works, and that he that that there's the twofold knowledge of God. This duplex cognitio dei is something that is there in the thought of Calvin. Okay. And, and more, and more real, of... real, real, real quick, Chris, just for listeners that are not familiar, um, who is Van Til, and kind of what what role okay. does he play in this? Because that's kind of a he's he's kind of like a major, a major hitter, and I guess would really affect kind of the thought from from him on. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Who's Van Til? Well, Van Til um, it was uh, the apologetics professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He got his PhD in philosophy from Princeton back in maybe 29. Uh, He's actually a pastor right across the river from where I grew up in Michigan. He was a pastor at a Reformed church in Spring Lake for a year. And then when J. Gresham Machen founded Westminster, uh, he asked Van Till to be a professor there. Didn't want to do it, but then he ended up uh, into the building. He had a short tenure at Calvin College, so he was uh, from a Dutch uh, background. He was raised in the Netherlands, came over to the USA, got educated, and became eventually did become professor with J. Gresham Mason. And uh, he wrote uh, prolifically about the importance of uh, understanding the presuppositions or the basic worldview assumptions of people in general, Christian or non-Christian. He focused a lot on the theory of knowledge, which is called epistemology. And his point of view is that for anybody to justify their knowledge, they have to presuppose the triune God of Scripture, the Protestant canon of Scripture at that, especially so. Um, and I was a big fan until for, I don't know, maybe 15 years until I started reading other points of view a little bit more, uh, with a little bit more of an open mind and a little bit less fear. <laughs> uh <laughs> Van Til, um, Van Til and his followers can be um, very dogmatic, and that dogmatic certainty appeals to a lot of people that want to have a high regard for Scripture and a high regard for God's uh, sovereignty and for His glory. Uh, so if you if you take the five points of Calvinism 
and the noetic effects of sin. And you're like, yeah, man, Calvin, man, that guy, he nailed it on how sinful we are. And, uh, you know, of course, we can't justify our knowledge until we actually know the one true God. There's no way we can use our human reason. So that's 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 kind of Van Til in a nutshell. But again, we've already noted noted that Van Til uh, and and other people just they just take they take for granted that Calvin uh, did not hold the duplex cognitio dei, the double the twofold knowledge of God. They take for granted that Calvin did not believe that. Okay. Pretty interesting. Yeah, let me let me ask you this. Maybe some of the modern guys. Um, I remember listening to a debate. I think you were you were present at this debate uh, between our philosophy professor Richard Howe, uh, Jason Lyle was in on it too, and Scott Oliphant. Yeah. So Oliphant Oliphant's a pretty big uh, name in reform circles for apologetics. Um, mm-hmm. What was, and I think he just wrote wrote that book, Covenantal Apologetics. What would someone like yeah. Oliphant's view be on natural mm-hmm. theology and, and natural law? I think I know, but for the listeners. Yeah, Oliphant, uh, whose colleague is William Edgar. Um, <laughs> Oliphant, I'm sure, would, I, I'm assuming, would, would agree with Edgar. And I have a quote from Edgar here that I'd like to read. Um, sure. You know, I'm familiar with Oliphant. I've actually spent time with him. We went out to lunch together. Really great guy. He was a big fan of Van Till, obviously. Um, so I'm going yeah. to read this quote from William Edgar. I haven't read Covenantal Apologetics, so I don't, I don't want to misspeak regarding what Oliphant would say natural law. Okay. Um, Fair so, enough. But here's, here's what William Edgar writes in the uh, Dictionary of Christian Apologetics, which was published ten years ago by InterVarsity. He says this. In an extended treatment on human sinfulness in the institutes of the Christian religion, Calvin makes numerous comments about the incapacity of unaided reason to know God in any kind of positive way. In that context, he concludes that, quote, the reason of our mind, wherever it may turn, is miserably subject to vanity, unquote. This does not mean for him that unbelievers are incapable of reaching any truth or advancing the sciences, but that without the word of God and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, the mind cannot direct us aright. So Edgar recognizes Calvin's Augustinian twofold epistemology of the heavenly and the earthly spheres, uh, but he ignores what uh, Calvin says about uh, being able to know God uh, by means of our reason, by means of general revelation. The non-scientific okay. knowledge of God that that Calvin uh, discusses. Okay, that's that is fair enough. So we kind of see. Uh, let's see. Let's. We got about I'm trying to think here. We got about uh, eight minutes. Um, okay. So let's move to how did Calvin understand the noetic effects of sin? Well, I guess we kind of hit that. Um, Actually, hit the, the last two. And any particular thing, kind of in conclusion, with the last uh, seven eight minutes here, go ahead and, and a, take us where you want to go a key, here. Key text for um, 
here's a key text for Calvin. Now, this is with respect to natural law, okay? So for, for Calvin, you know, I think he, uh, you know, I would agree with Grable that Calvin leaves a formal possibility for natural theology and natural law, more so for natural law than natural theology. But here's what he says. Here's what he says in the Institutes uh, regarding the, uh, the, the twofold knowledge of God. Uh, he says, God provided man's soul with a mind by which to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong, and with light of reason as his guide to distinguish what should be followed from what should be avoided. And he says, Calvin insisted uh, that the seed of political order universally in all persons, ample proof, this is quoting Calvin, Ample proof that in the arrangement of this life, no life is without the light of reason. I quoted those at the beginning of the interview. I wanted to make sure that I um, closed on those as well. Uh, he he says something else here, too. Now, here's really important. Uh, when, when you talk about... Um, when you talk about the... Uh, post-Lapsarian anthropology. We're all we're all laughing in the room here because one of my students just spilled her bottle of Gatorade all over my paper that I'm reading excerpts to you from. But it's perfect uh. timing. It's okay. it's okay, Brianna. Say hi to the audience. Live my radio, folks. Live radio. Right now, he's just on the floor. It's blue. <laughs> It's blue. We'll probably just have to discard it. It's not a big deal. Um, here's what Calvin says concerning post-Lapsarian anthropology. Post-Lapsarian just means after the fall. Okay. Okay. Post-Lapsarian anthropology. Uh, so what is the nature of man after the fall? And he agrees with Aristotle on the priority. Here it is. Uh, he agrees with Aristotle on the priority of the intellect over the will. Okay, so that's really important. Calvin agrees with Aristotle on the priority of the intellect over the will. That's really key okay. to the discussion and the debate between classical and presuppositional apologetics. Okay, okay. so here let me read. He says... Let it be enough for us that the understanding is, as it were, the leader and governor of the soul, and that the will is always mindful of the bidding of the understanding, and in its own desires awaits the judgment of the understanding. So it's in the very next section, in 1.15.8, where Calvin talks about the light of reason as being a gift of man. To, a gift to man from God. Uh, and uh, Calvin concludes with, for this reason the philosophers call this directing part the faculty of the mind. So in Calvin's anthropology, the intellect has priority over the will. And the intellect, having being the seat of human reason, and being a gift from God, and that no man is without the light of reason, uh, in order to distinguish good and evil, it therefore stands to reason that Calvin held to a 
rather strong notion of natural law. So uh, I think for anybody that's interested in Reformed theology and the relationship between uh, natural law and and Reformed uh, theological ethics, needs to get this book uh, published by Stephen J. Grable, uh, published by Erdman's. It was written in... uh, 2006. Great read, very eye-opening. Um, and so, well, very good. Um, anything in conclusion here as we wrap up? Um, yeah, I would just say, you know, uh, I'm personally delighted in this study. Um, there's a lot to think about, you know, the ro- relationship between the intellect and the will and how sin affects that and, and uh, you know, these, these kinds of things, the, uh, the analogy of being and all these kinds of things. Um, but it has really solidified uh, my departure <laughs> from, the presupposition, from the presuppositional uh, method. I was a very strong card-carrying presuppositionalist up until right. about two years ago, about two years ago, yeah, when I started reading more uh, on this topic. So is I'm there, sure all my yeah. So let me let me ask to, you because the charge yeah. and and in fact, um, uh, Fred Butler made this charge last week, right? Uh, that issues of natural law or natural theology, these classical arguments, etc that someone like R.C. Sproul is just being inconsistent uh, in his theology to adopt that. Um, You and me are, (laughs) you're one of the few guys I know that are reformed that hold to the classical approach. And I'm just, uh, just curious, uh, what would you say to that charge that if you are reformed uh, and you hold to a classical method, et cetera, then you're just being uh, inconsistent. And I, I'd point out just real quickly, Calvinists that are dispensationalists that right. say they're reformed and wanting to charge uh, inconsistency, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. But but go ahead. Uh, are we being inconsistent, uh, being classical sure. and reformed? You know, I'm reminded of when I was working at a warehouse a number of years ago while my wife was going through school, and I was listening to Sproul's series on renewing your mind on apologetics. And, uh, you know, he espouses the classical method. And I remember him teaching that, you know, God, of course, is first in the order of being. You know, ontologically, metaphysically, God is first. As, 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 as God, of course he is. You know, we come after God, okay? Uh, but he says, uh, while God is first in order of being, he's not first in order of knowing. And uh, with that, he appeals, you know, to uh, sense experience and, um, you know, man's man's ability to use his reason to know the world around him and to know good from evil and these kinds of things. So... You know, I would just say that uh, when I first heard that, I rolled my eyes because I was a a presuppositionalist and I was under the impression that, you know, metaphysics and epistemology are these, um, 
uh, two categories that need to be held simultaneously. I was very much influenced by John Frame's triperspectivalist approach uh, to knowledge that, you know, you, you metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics are these three spokes in a wheel that are all codependent upon each other, and therefore you have to presuppose all of them simultaneously. And, you know, I think there's some strength to that argument, but uh, because it's a, it draws a good picture, but, um, you know, if you understand epistemology as a subcategory of metaphysics, then that kind of changes things. Uh, that That would mean that metaphysics is, you know, logically and rationally prior to epistemology. Um, so, you know, I would say the charge against Sproul for that really needs, um, that would need a lot of parsing out. And I mean, I would disagree with it um, just because uh, it's evident from Romans 1, it's evident from the writings of the Reformers, uh, it's evident uh, from philosophy that epistemology um, is a subcategory of, of metaphysics. Um, metaphysics being the study of being, epistemology being the study of how we know what being is. So it seems to me that metaphysics is prior to epistemology, and that would fit in very well with what Sproul says about God being the first in order of being, the second in the order of knowing. Does that? Are you still there? Hello. Mommy, I think I spoke too much. Uh, oh, Mr. Mr. Devin, you there? Yeah. I, you know what? I'm sitting here talking and I had myself muted. <laughs> um, uh, I was, I was. I would say I, I appreciate you coming on, man. You, uh, you're a wealth of knowledge, and really look forward to having you back on again in the future. Thanks, man. I appreciate so, it. Great job. Yeah, we need we to the, we need to do a, a full two hours uh, on one of these. Oh, that bottle. Okay. <laughs> Live radio, right? <laughs> well, I tell you, it's college right. kids. I, love I know, every, man. I love every one of them. Amen. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> we we will talk, brother. I appreciate you again, and thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. God Ciao. bless.